Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone.
Today's Monday, June 7, 2021. Coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin says he will vote against the For the People Act, and then he digs in on ending the filibuster. We'll talk with New York Congressman uh, Jamal Bowman, who is quite vocal on this issue, as well as others as well. A new report on voting warns that Democrats can't depend on the same racially diverse voters who brought victory to President Joe Biden in 2020. What's up for 2022 in Maryland? State's attorney John McCarthy is investigating whether the victims race played a role in the prosecutions in, in that state. Also in Maryland, Wes Moore has announced he is running for governor. In Virginia, we'll talk with Jennifer McClellan, uh, who is trying to become the Democratic nominee for governor. And in my book club segment, I'll talk with the author of Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaigns to Defeat Donald Trump. Plus, in Fit, Live, Win, how do you keep your energy up while dieting? Folks, we also remember actor Clarence Williams III, who passed away at the age of 81. It is time to bring the funk. I'm Roland Martin on Filter. Let's go. Over the weekend, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, one of 50 Democrats, announced in an editorial in that state, in a state newspaper, that he plans to support suppressing the vote. Yeah, we actually said that. Now, what I mean by that is, he said he is going to vote against the For the People Act, already passed in the in the House by Democrats. He is calling that particular bill way too partisan. So, what do you call what Republicans are doing? across the country. He keeps saying we need bipartisanship. He keeps saying that uh, he'll support uh, the extension of the Voting Rights Act. But, but I'm sorry, Joe, did you not realize that was invalidated by the John Roberts Supreme Court? And Republicans have shown no interest in actually fixing that. He went to Fox News on Sunday talking to Chris Wallace. Won't come talk to black media, but he'll only go talk to conservative media where he was asked about his reasoning for voting against the For the People Act. Watch this. Let, let me ask you about another issue, uh, voting rights. You're the only Democrat in the Senate who is not supporting S-1, the, the so-called For the People yeah. Act, which would be a major uh, voting reform bill. You say it's too broad and too partisan. Uh, and instead, you support uh, basically a a renewal of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which says that the feds get pre-clearance on any voting right changes in individual states, but you'd like it to apply to all 50 states, not just the states in the South that had a history of segregation. A uh, uh, couple of questions. One, is Chuck Schumer making a mistake in pushing this big bill, the For the People Act, and saying that he wants to vote on it uh, by the end of the month? And two, if he does bring it to the floor, Will you vote against that bill? 
Well, I've been pretty clear on that. I did an op-ed back home in, in, in West Virginia. It came out today and laid out my, uh, my concerns and my, and my preference of what, you know, what I think would happen. Uh, you know, voting is the bedrock of our democracy, an open, fair, secured voting. We used to go around the world and explain and show and observe voting pr uh, procedures in a democracy. And now if we can't practice what we preach and we're going to basically do an overhaul, an 800-page overhaul of the voting uh, rights or what we call For the People Act, I think there's a lot of great things. I agree in that piece of legislation, but there's an awful lot of things that basically don't pertain directly to voting. So the Voting Rights Act... So, or so now let me we've... just... Sure. I just, I just, so just to put a, a, a button on this, you will vote against that bill if it gets to the Senate floor. I think it's the wrong piece of legislation to bring our country together and unite our country, and I'm not supporting that because I think it would divide us further. I don't want to be in a country that's divided any further than I'm in right now. I love my country, and I think my Democrat and Republican colleagues feel the same. If we continue to divide it and separate us more, it's not going to be united, and it's not going to be the country that we love and know, and it's going to be hard because it'll be back and forth no matter who's in power. He doesn't want to see a country that is divided. Yet right now in Texas, they try to pass an onerous voter suppression law. Georgia, Florida, Iowa, Arkansas. I can go on and on and on. What in the hell world is Joe Manchin living in? Does he not see what is going on? Does he not see that the Supreme Court handed Republicans a huge victory with gerrymandering by saying, oh, no, 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 we can't get involved in partisan gerrymandering? That's left up to the state courts. Well, the problem with that is Republicans have gerrymandered the states so they control the state Supreme Courts. They control 61 out of the 99 legislative bodies in the country. If these laws go forward, they can further solidify their support, actually uh, hurting black and brown voters, but not just black and brown voters, white voters. They're targeting white voters, college-educated white voters. They're targeting the suburbs in Texas where Republicans have been getting killed. And then he's, oh, bipartisan. Fine, Joe, show me the 10. By all means, Manchin, show me the 10. He says that, oh, his colleague, Lisa Murkowski, agrees with him when it comes to the Voting Rights Act. Okay, let's assume 50 Democrats vote for it. Murkowski's 51. You say you are in the filibuster. How in the hell would the John Lewis Act get passed if you don't have nine more Republicans? Joining us now, New York Congressman Jamal Bowen. Uh, Congressman, glad to have you on the show. Um, the logic of Manchin is beyond belief. It is sheer stupidity. He keeps talking, oh, I don't want the nation divided. I don't want us actually split. Fine, Joe. Please show me the nine other Republicans you're going to bring along with Murkowski. I'll wait. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, designated himself as the uh, protector of a myth. A myth that states, you know, we need to become more bipartisan. And if I support 
H.R. 1, it drives us further apart. The bottom line is corporations and the wealthy elite control our democracy. They control our Congress, and they control specifically the Republican Party. And what H.R. 1 does, in addition to uh, retroactively providing uh, protection when it comes to voting rights, it also gets big money out of politics. So now me and other members of Congress will be more beholden to the people than we are to large corporations. This is something that Senator Manchin never speaks about. He only puts up the myth of we need a bipartisan protection of voting rights. Yes, we do, but the Republicans have also shown no willingness to negotiate in good faith. So H.R. 1 ends gerrymandering. It protects uh, voter voters in terms of um, outside interference, and it gets big money out of politics and brings us closer to a one-person, one-vote. Everyone's voice is empowered within a multiracial democracy, and that is why H.R. 1 is so significant. But it's not just Manchin. It's a bigger system that's been in place where, through a minority rule in the Senate, we have a minority controlling the majority of the American people. Well, and, and your colleague, uh, Representative Mondaire Jones, um, um, he, he sent out a series of tweets that I thought uh, was important because Manchin, uh, so Manchin wrote this. Unfortunately, we're now witnessing that the fundamental right to vote has itself become overtly politicized. Today's debate about how to best protect our right to vote and to hold elections, however, is not about finding common ground but seeking partisan advantage, whether it is state laws that seek to needless, needlessly restrict voting or politicians who ignore the need to secure our elections, partisan policymaking won't instill confidence in our democracy. It will destroy it. Okay, let's just, let's just deal with right here where he says, whether it is state laws that seek to needlessly restrict voting, that's Republicans, or politicians who ignore the need to secure our elections. I, I, I'm sorry, Congressman, uh, uh, just correct me if I'm wrong. How many state how many secretaries of state said their elections were secure? How many secretaries of state uh, uncovered voter fraud? So I'm just trying to figure out who the hell is ignoring securing our elections. Is he literally saying that Democrats are ignoring securing our elections? That's a Republican Donald Trump, uh, I lost, it was rigged talking point. 100% correct. Uh, Donald Trump and the Republican Party have been pushing the big lie of a stolen election. No evidence of that whatsoever. They continue to push that big lie. Republicans voted to overturn the Electoral College in the House. Uh, they failed at that. Republicans did not vote to impeach Donald Trump despite clear uh, evidence that he incited an insurrection just recently, a couple of weeks ago. Republicans in the Senate did not support the forming of a commission to investigate the January 6th insurrection. Uh, so we got the majority of the votes to pass it if a simple majority was enough. But because of the filibuster, we did not get the 10 votes from the other side that we needed. So we are in a place now where Republicans continue to obstruct. They continue to push a big lie. And Manchin, as a Democrat, is using their talking points 
uh, in terms of his holier-than-now stance on protecting our democracy. We were sent, Democrats were sent to Congress to deliver for the American people. H.R. 1 is popular amongst Democrats and Republicans. We need to pass H.R. 1. We need to pass common-sense gun control legislation. We need to pass common-sense immigration legislation and many other pieces of legislation that cannot move because of the filibuster and because Manchin, in and of himself, continues to act as a singular filibuster with popular American policy. I love this one here. This is also from the same op-ed he wrote. Democrats in Congress have proposed a sweeping election reform bill called the For the People Act. This more than 800-page bill has garnered zero Republican support. Why? Are the very Republican senators who voted to impeach Trump because of actions that led to an attack on our democracy unwilling to support actions to strengthen our democracy? Yeah. Are these same senators, whom many in my party applauded for their courage, now threats to the very democracy we seek to protect? Yeah. But here's what's hilarious, Congressman Bowman. Only seven Republican senators voted to impeach Trump. 50 plus seven equals 57. That's still not enough to get to 60. I mean, he's asinine. I mean, I sit here and go, dumbass, do you even understand what you're writing? 50 plus 7 ain't 60. I know West Virginia is real bad in the education stats in America, like 48, 49, 50 around Mississippi and Alabama, but damn, dude, can you count? <laughs> and I think it's important to also mention what the filibuster was designed to do. The filibuster was designed to stop civil rights legislation, specifically anti-lynching legislation, Southern Dixiecrats. Strom Thurmond, who is a member, was a member of the KK and a senator, uh, used the filibuster to fight to stop the Rights Act. Uh, in 1957. So, this is to uphold white nationalism, white supremacy, and corporate control of Congress, and Manchin is aiding and abetting that and not making much sense as he aids and abets it. Uh, and uh, to support your point, this literally is the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. talking about the filibuster specifically when it comes to voting. Maybe Joe Manchin and Meghan McCain should watch this. So we get this to play. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable uh, what we're actually seeing uh, from Republicans here. Uh, let me see if we can now get this uh, to play. All right, folks, go ahead. To this. How would you feel about submitting this to a vote of the people of the United States who have never really had an opportunity to express themselves in this area? Well, this would certainly be all right with me because I think the vast majority of people in the United States would vote favorably for such a bill. I think the tragedy is that uh, we have a Congress uh, with a Senate 
that has a minority of misguided senators who will use the filibuster to keep the majority of people from even voting. They won't let the majority senators vote. And certainly they wouldn't want the majority of people to vote because they know they do not represent the majority of the American people. In fact, they represent in their own states a very small minority. If the That point right there, the Republican senators actually represent 40 million fewer American citizens than the Democrats. That shows you that we have an unequal system. And for Senator Joe Manchin to sit here and stand in the way. And, and, and look, the only way around this, and I know people are like, oh, here you go talking about voting. But this is simple. Ron Johnson must be defeated in Wisconsin. Democrats must win the Senate seat in North Carolina. They must win that Senate seat in Pennsylvania. They must retain the Senate seats in Georgia and Arizona. If that's the case, you got Congressman Val Demings who's gonna be running against uh, Senator Marco Rubio in Florida. It's gonna be a very tough race. But if Democrats are able to hold Georgia and Arizona and pick up, and pick up Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, that negates Joe Manchin and the filibuster can be ended. 100% agree and I think Another very important point must be made. We, in our community, must continue to apply pressure on Senate and House leadership and the White House. We, all of your listeners, Roland, and our extended network, we must act as a lobby to demand transformative change when it comes to the filibuster, practices in the Senate, and overall legislation. That happens through writing, phone calls, organizing, rallies, and consistent engagement. Roland, there are people who care about a variety of issues, who call my office daily and write my office daily to make sure I pay attention to those issues. Our community needs to do the same thing, whether it's the NAACP, the Urban League, Color of Change, every group needs to come together and apply pressure on the White House, the, Congress, um, the House, and the Senate. And the infrastructure bill is a big part of it because they're trying to go smaller when we need to go bigger because this, in my opinion, is our reparations moment. They didn't give us anything with the Homestead Act. They didn't give us anything with the New Deal and Social Security and the GI Bill. We have to continue to apply pressure on a day-to-day -day basis so that they respond to our demands. Last point here. Republicans love to talk about uh, the uh, voting restrictions in New York State. I have to remind those very same people that progressive Democrats have been demanding lots of those changes. They got some of those recently uh, in a bill signed by uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo. But the reality is uh, folks like you are not stopping there. Uh, they want to make New York the model and not be as so restrictive as they have been when it comes to voting. 100%. And because of our organizing and new people who are not part of the machine running for Congress, we now have a super majority in the state house and a and many progressives in the state house. So the stuff that we win here is because we've organized for it on a day-to-day -day basis. The same way Stacey Abrams and many others organized to help us win Georgia uh, for the first time. Georgia, all blue. President and senators, all blue. 
So that organizing needs to continue to happen across the country, it needs to happen in West Virginia, and it needs to happen everyone else to become what this democracy claims it wants to be, but never really has been the case, uh, particularly for black folk. Absolutely. Uh, Congressman Jamal Bowen, we certainly appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you, sir. Let's go to our panel, Dr. Julia Malvo. She's economist, president emerita Bennett College, Makongo Dabinga, professorial uh, lecturer, School of International Service, American University, Michael Brown, former vice chair, DNC Finance Committee. Bottom line, Michael is this here. Uh, that is, Manchin uh, has spoken, uh, but the reality is this here. Uh, I say you got to light his ass up at every single turn. You got every time he speaks somewhere, he needs to be met with protesters. Every single one of his offices in West Virginia. He needs to have folks going to his office in Congress every single day. Every time he turns around, it should be a voting sign in his face. Every single, t every single time he gives a speech, it should be folks chanting in the back, uh, Jim Crow 2.0. The reality is this here. What Senator Joe Manchin is doing uh, is doing the bidding of the Republican Party. And then when you have folks like uh, uh, Meghan McCain who, who are on The View talking about, oh, how this is all about the squad, I had to tweet her clueless self saying, no, Meghan, this is not about the squad. There, you have independent Senator Angus King in the Senate who says, I don't want to end the filibuster but what they are doing on voting is dead wrong, and I will vote to end it. See, the squad has now become the new George Soros for the right. They love everything about the squad. No, this is literally about the voting rights of black and brown people and a party that is advancing white supremacy and white nationalism. That is today's Republican Party. First of all, um, I don't know what you're doing with that funny-looking shirt on. But um, you know you want to don't, don't don't get embarrassed today. I, I, I just I, I'm just saying. I, don't so, don't get embarrassed you know, today. I, remember, I, Alpha's your I, daddy. Oh Lord. And remember, y'all was so weak, you took one of our colors as your own. You better go ahead and answer that question. First of all, you know I don't think um, Schumer would ever ever do it. Um, but when you have someone who is so far, the, you know, beyond being the black sheep who is so far off the reservation on a variety of issues because he's... Yeah, I'm there. Yeah, but I'm making some point about, oh, bipartisanship and let's bring the country together and all this kind of stuff. The legend, what these states are doing are, are further splitting the country up. And I don't think Schumer would ever do it. Um, I, I don't even think he would threaten it. But sometimes, you know, you got to do some tough things. And in politics, sometimes it's hard to make these tough decisions and, and take him off some committees, put him on different committees that aren't as relevant that he really cares about. You got to start, I mean, whether that's the case, whether you have to do old school politics and offer him the Joe Manchin Airport in Morgantown or a new brand new highway with his name on it, whatever it is, whether it's old school politics or starting to strip him of some of his uh, favorite committees, you got to do something that threatens him to make to bring him back into the fold. Because what he's doing is irrational on a variety of issues. Yes, of course, voting rights, as you and the congressman were just talking about. Clearly, from my standpoint, D.C. statehood. He's all he was also acting like a fool with that. Um, uh, obviously, the infrastructure bill. He thinks that Republicans are going to wake up one day and say, you know what, kumbaya, let's come together and bring our country back together. That's not going to happen, at least no time soon. So if you're in a particular landscape, you have to treat the landscape accordingly. And that means putting the hammer down 
on Joe Manchin for acting like a fool. The, the, the thing here, Julian, is that, again, uh, it, it, look, it's sitting before us right now. It's sitting before us. <clears throat> the Republican Party, they ain't playing bipartisanship on the state level. They are ramming through these bills, no Democrat involvement whatsoever. And I'm like, Manchin, what the hell world are you looking at? They are trying to solidify. This is how significant this is. Democrats only hold a four-seat majority in the U.S. House. Republicans in Florida alone could gerrymander Democrats out of the majority. In Texas, they could grab three to four more seats. That means that forget whatever voters do, white voters, black voters, Latino voters, the Republicans could guarantee they pick up eight Democrat seats, meaning they control the House. And Manchin's talking about, uh, I don't want to want to split the country. We got to get along. <laughs> Republicans are like, we don't give a damn about splitting the country. We're going to follow Trump to, the, to, to hell and back, and we do not care because we are about power. You know, Roland, uh, what the, uh, what's his name? We don't call his name. The previous president used to call people rhinos, Republicans in name only. Manchin is a dino. He's a Democrat in name only. Some of the things that are fundamental to the Democratic Party are things that he refuses to support. I mean, he refuses to support uh, infrastructure. When people have been crying for it... And when West Virginia is crumbling, let me say that again, they got a bridge that's about to die. They have roads and highways that, you know, potholes the size of uh, ponies. And they really do not want... He does not want to see this stuff fixed. He is, be, uh, to call him a throwback, will be thrown back to what? Uh, Jim Pro 2.0, absolutely. But this man is an egotistical idiot because he's basically holding progress in his own little hand, saying, I'm not going to do it because I don't want to. And what he has done, certainly with the voting rights, which is already, we, we understand that there, it has never been majority rule in this country. It has never been one person, one vote in this country. Because if there was, how does itty-bitty Rhode Island have the same amount of power as big old California? Well, hell, how do... First of all, I love that they're complaining about D.C. statehood, but they forgot why the Dakotas were split up to guarantee they got four U.S. senators when the Dakotas should be one state because they barely got any population in those two damn states. No, they got population 24 buffaloes. That's what they have. They don't have people. So, you know, it... it Mansion is just such an irritation and a vexation, but he is enjoying every minute of this. I mean, he's truly enjoying every minute. It feeds his ego, it feeds his self sense of self-importance, and it does not serve the people. Um, the, the, the bottom line here, uh, Omicongo, that, that we have to understand, and again, this is not me being emotional. This is me being factual. Republicans are running roughshod over democracy all across America. They are passing bills that are designed to keep people from voting. When you start reducing drop boxes by 75-80%, claiming, oh, security, but they're already secure. When you are... When you, when you pass laws that say, I literally cannot deliver my parents' absentee ballot, they have to do it personally. Yeah, game recognize game. We see what's going on here. 
And he's sitting here, so, oh my God, this is just too much. This is just too hyperpartisan. Well, what are you <laughs> saying that's happening over there? And here's the other deal. 2013, I got the NABJ, the National Association of Black Journalists, Journalists of the Year Award for my coverage for voter suppression. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I don't recall one time in the last eight years where Joe Manchin was a leading voice on extending the Voting Rights Act. So all of a sudden, Joe, all of a sudden, you got religion on the VRA? Why in the hell weren't you holding news conferences when Mitch McConnell was majority leader? Why weren't you calling for it then? Oh, because you didn't give a damn then. Most definitely. And here, this, this, <laughs> Dr. Malvoe is so correct. This, this diva power trip is just ridiculous. I mean, quite honestly, look, as you said, 50 plus 7 does not equal 60. And one of the things that the representative said that I think we need to start paying more attention to is we need to start seeing where this, where the money's coming from with Manchin because part of H.R. 1 is about getting that money out of this. We got to shine a light on some of his donors to really understand because some of his donors and or uh, corporations that are probably supporting him are probably in favor of this. Probably companies that didn't speak out when it came to places like Georgia and what they're doing in places like Texas as well. And so I think that there's a money trail that we need to follow. But furthermore, when we talk about the filibuster, fine, he can make his arguments about why the filibuster shouldn't end. But when it comes down to voting, it's got to go. When it comes down to that one issue of voting, the filibuster has to go. And look, at the end of the day, we're not even talking about the old school filibuster where you actually had to be present and make your extra long speeches. People can just phone it in from, from their hot tub or from their hotel or from <laughs> Cancun or somewhere right now. And so there's laziness all in an attempt to get power. And Manchin has to... I think Manchin does understand that basically when it comes down to it, the Republicans are not going to give in. And so since we see how people are actually struggling in West Virginia, you talked about education, what, 48? Dr. Malvo talked about some of the other issues with the infrastructure. He has to be beholden to the people who are his corporate interests because he doesn't care about the people. He cares about being a diva. He cares about the spotlight. And that's why, like you said, we have to make sure that we get as many senators in as possible come this next election cycle because he has to be made irrelevant. Um, look, it, it is what it is. We see what's going on here. And, you know, the folks at Black Voters Matter, they're going to be launching a massive uh, voter um, uh, campaign extending from uh, Mississippi coming to D.C. beginning on Juneteenth. They got a stop in Charleston on June 24th. I hope there's a massive turnout uh, for that. Folks, let's talk about uh, 2022, where a new Democratic report finds that Democrats are at risk of losing Black, Hispanic, and Asian American voters in the next election. The study was conducted by a third way, the Collective PAC and the Latino Victory Fund. They found that support from these groups will fall short unless the Democratic Party presents an economic agenda that's inclusive to all. It also warns that voters want them to counter Republican efforts to spread misinformation and tie all Democratic candidates to the far left. Other key findings from the report include uh, Republican attempts to brand Democrats as radicals worked, year-round organizing and cross-party collaboration worked, Black, Latino, and AAPI um, uh, voters made a difference in top races, polling failed to reach the right people, but they also said this here, that, that defund the police, according to uh, a poll that was done, uh, actually uh, is not supportive. By, supported by African-Americans and that defund the police actually 
hurts Democrats because Republicans were successful at branding them as not being a, being supportive of police. Uh, Julian, I, I want to start with you on this uh, because that poll was conducted by Cornell Belcher, African-American by his firm. It was a commission by a collective PAC which supports black candidates. And so the question is this. Uh, what, you know, Congressman Jim Clyburn got lots of criticism when he criticized defund the police uh, and others as well. And so if that is true, if even black voters that are, that are polled uh, support uh, resources going to the police to protect the communities, uh, what adjustments must Democrats make in the midterms where there are few people who are likely to vote and you're going to have to get folks out? And as I said, Democrats have to win. Uh, they got to protect Georgia. Pastor Raphael Warnock is up for re-election. Uh, Mark <coughs> Kelly uh, in Arizona is up for re-election. And then, of course, you have those op you have those seats in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, uh, Florida. Uh, North Carolina and Pennsylvania, in particular, are open seats because those senators are not running for re-election. You know, Roland, I think that the uh, Black Lives Matter team, uh, we all support them, of course, but I think they made a critical error with that language of defund the police. No, nobody wants to completely defund the police. We want to use the resources differently. Defund is an easy, you know, like the Geico commercial out of the... Anyway, defund is an easy thing to say, but first of all, difficult to do. And secondly, especially older black people aren't going for that. If you are living in a community where uh, in Southeast D.C. over the weekend, I think three people were killed, you want the police there. If you uh, walk up... Uh, certain streets in D.C., down to, even in downtown D.C. You want the police there. So don't say defund, but that, that language, Republicans will take our language and slap us in the face with it, and we've allowed them to do that. We have to be far more careful about the language we use when we talk about police justice. We want the George Floyd uh, Act passed. We want people to stop being killed on the street. But to say defund is an automatic turnoff for too many black people. And so somehow those of us, you, Roland, I mean, because you got the, the platform, I mean, and, and praise the Lord for it, but we have to figure out ways to have different kinds of language around this and to make that language more popular than the defund language. We know what they mean by defund the police, but we also know that many of our elders in particular, but also others, we, I mean, who are you going to call when someone breaks into your house? Let me just put it that way. Who are you going to call when uh, you get mugged on the street? So those are the kind of questions I think a lot that are running through a lot of people's minds. We don't want to weaponize the police, but we certainly need their presence in so many ways. McCongo, the one of the points that they made, they talked about, of course, look, you cannot expect uh, voters of color, black, Latino, and Asian to somehow just support you because, just because, which means you're going to have to work for them, compete for them, put the resources in those communities. Let me just also put it out there, and that is because uh, they've been showing this report to different Democratic uh, strategists and others, and I'm going to go ahead and say it. You also got to stop letting these white Democratic strategists run the damn money and run the campaigns. That's the problem. I can't tell you how many black people I've talked to who work in political campaigns who are sick and tired of listening to smart-ass white men and women who refuse to listen to the ground and know how to connect, and they figure, oh, yeah, we'll just throw paltry sums, but then we can just simply go keep chasing these Republican white women who are never going to vote for them. And that whole point about year-round campaigning, yes. 
That's what you got to do. You got to invest. That's right. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. And there's, there's two parts to this when I look at it. Number one, I remember when Obama was running and people, and one of the things he said is, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And he was talking about what happens if you don't go Democrat, what do you get with the Republican Party? And I do believe that many of us within the Black, Hispanic, and API community, we do have to be mindful of just what's happening right now when Democrats are, quote unquote, in power and seeing how to re what the Republicans are doing. And so we have to be mindful of if we do stay back and not engage in this next election cycle, it's going to be the end. Because once we saw that they didn't want to impeach Trump, they, we should have known then that they were working to bring him back. Once we saw the insurrection on January 6th, we should understand now with these voter suppression efforts that the insurrection is still ongoing. That was just one of the more violent aspects of it, but it's still ongoing right now. Now, having said that, the Democrats also need to do a better job of staying in touch directly with the community. You know, it's a great example of it when we saw how the COVID uh, vaccine was distributed in the beginning, how I'm sitting here in Southeast D.C., one of the poorest areas of the poorest areas of D.C., and I'm seeing white folks coming in or older white folks from all across town because the rollout targeted people who had better access to resources. And so the Democratic Party cannot lay on its laurels, not on its laurels, cannot sit on them, cannot, like you said, just go with these um, white Democratic strategists. They need to keep the messaging in these communities. And people will not show up because at the end of the day, despite everything we're talking about, all politics is personal. And people, the Democrats, you really got to step up right now. DNC, you got to get in these communities and you got to push this message hard because we will end up losing if a better job is not done. The, the, the thing here, uh, Michael, that, that I keep getting folks to understand is, and I love the people who they talk about uh, well, we, we got to get this, this. First of all, no, a politician can promise you all sorts of things when running. That's fine. But what happens when they win? Now, let me unpack that. I've had some people say, well, uh, Biden should have promised this. Biden could have. Biden can't pass a single bill in the House or the Senate. He can't. We're, we're seeing right now. Right now, what happens in the Senate and how with Manchin blocking how things are done. There's somebody who's watching us right now. Same thing, they talk about school boards, city councils. Yes, you may vote for your school board member, your council member, but if you got a nine-member council, a nine-member school board, you need five votes. So you need to have the four other votes. And so I, it, it amazes me when I hear people say that because they somehow think that, well, their member of Congress or their school board member is the be-all to end-all, and that's not the case. You have to build coalitions to get things done, which means after the election, you still must push, prod, petition, protest, if necessary, to get something done. Voting is the end of one process, and the election, once it's over, is the beginning of another. And it's interesting you mentioned that, Roland. I, you know, when I ran, um, and fortunate enough to, to win my city council seat, uh, I tried to do what you just talked about. I tried to explain, even when, because it, it, it's certainly the temptation is there to promise, obviously, the world, here's what I'm going to do for you. And, and, and you know, it, it's hard to resist that temptation. But what I did is I also said, but let me tell you how it works on the D.C. City Council. You need seven votes to get anything passed, just like you said. And so I tried to campaign and educate along the way. So then folks understood, okay, Michael's there,
but he still has to get six other votes for us to move. So maybe we need to work in other places around the city or work with different uh, constituency groups. So that's what politicians, frankly, should be doing. Promise, yes, but also educate along the way. But having said that, the challenge in the midterm elections is always, especially for people of color, they get extreme, or they, we get extremely motivated for the top of the ticket, the presidential race. But on, in, the, in the midterms, oh, it doesn't matter. We already did what we were supposed to do. We got Obama elected twice. We now got Biden elected. But go back, we got Clinton elected. And in each of those situations, uh, the first term, the first midterm, Clinton lost, Obama lost. So obviously we don't want Biden to have that same track record. So we have to have the same level of engagement in midterms as we do in presidentials. And all the way down the ballot, not just president, not just your senator, a member of Congress, but yes, city council, school board, dog catcher, whatever it is, people, our folks, for whatever reason, historically, haven't been engaged in all elections across the board. I'll give a perfect example. Over the weekend, um, Deborah Peoples uh, lost in the runoff uh, to be um, the uh, mayor of uh, Fort Worth. Um, and give me a second, I'm, I'm gonna show you what the re results were. And, and, and one of the concerns, one of the concerns uh, that uh, she had was what the turnout was going to be. Uh, and, uh, and the reality is, um, you know what, the, it, it, did not, uh, it, it did not go as expected. And, and the thing that, uh, that I keep trying to explain to people is that uh, to that point, you, you have to, Omicongo, you, you have to show up. Uh, you have to be there um, for the election. And so here's the case right here. Um, Maddie Parker, she got 47,283 votes. Uh, Deborah Peoples got 41,012 votes. When we were there in Fort Worth, Deborah told us Hispanics made up 30 plus percent of the voters in Fort Worth had 7% turnout. Black voters, same thing, low turnout. The reason Maddie Parker won is because when they counted the early voting, she had a several thousand vote lead in early voting. Peoples could not overcome that on same day voting. This is real simple. And guess what? People's, people's ran. She spoke to the issues that we care about. Uh, and so what this particular analysis lays out is that there can't just be a candidate focus. There has to be a party focus. Infrastructure, when Howard Dean talked about a 50-state strategy, that's really the challenge uh, that Jamie Harrison is going to have as chair of the Democratic National Committee. Absolutely. And, you know, what? it has me thinking about the, the issues that Trump and Republicans pulled with the census and the like. When you speak about so many of these issues, we had a lot of people within the Hispanic community who didn't even bother to fill out the census because they felt that they were going to be tracked and they, and they were going to be deported if, if, their, if their documents were in order, right? I think what's happening right now with all of this voter suppression talk and all of these bills that are being passed, many of us in the community, we're acting as if these bills have already been passed and if we can't even vote anymore and, and we're not fully engaging. And again, it goes back to what Dr. Malvo was talking about, about the marketing, right? And there, I remember when I ran for city council here in D.C. and I was out on the street campaign 
campaigning. And I was trying to talk to this one woman, and she said, I don't do that politics stuff. I mean, there's not a single aspect of our lives that isn't controlled by politicians and laws. And so, you know, Peoples is absolutely right. And I, I, we have to do a better job, Harrison and DNC, of, of, of bridging this disconnect to understand that these local elections matter. When I saw the, 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 the candidate who won there being embraced by Abbott and Trump and all of those uh, other guys, I was like, here we go. Here we go. And this is why Trumpism is so dangerous, because people think, oh, Trump is gone, we're all good. But between this new mayor and the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, they're planting themselves all across the country, and we need to wake up before it's too late. You know, one of the things that um, we talk about this here that we have to also deal with, and again, and look, people don't want to own up to this, but Julian, we got to own up to it. And that is this here. Today's Democratic National Committee was in many ways uh, destroyed or severely gutted by Obama. Oh, yeah. The success, and, and, and I got, and look, this is one of the reasons why the Obama folks were not happy with me. That's the reason why when you see him giving all these interviews uh, to all these other people, he ain't talking a row, because I had no problem telling them to their face. The work that Reverend Jackson, Dr. Ron Walters, Ron Brown did after Reverend's run in 84 and 88 was gutted by Obama. Now, all the folks who love Obama, let me explain so y'all can understand. <laughs> Obama's whole deal was he didn't need the sophisticated black infrastructure that was put in place. He didn't need it. His whole deal, they're going to turn out for me. I kept saying, player, you only going to be there eight years. What's going to happen after you leave? Organizing Obama for America turned into Organizing for America. They shifted all of these resources over to OFA and gutted the DNC. So part of what this report is laying out is literally trying to rebuild that infrastructure that Jackson Brown Walters worked hard to put in place that in many ways Obama completely gutted. Well, you know, Roland, uh, you interviewed me uh, five or six years ago when I wrote my book, Are We Better Off? Race Obama in Public Policy. So look at, you know, the effect of Obama. The fact is that as a titular head of the Democratic Party, he is singularly responsible for the losses in 2010. Dollars could have been invested in the local DNCs, in local races in 2010, and he didn't do that because, again, he was all about himself. Now, brilliant brother, all that stuff, folks, don't send any, you know, don't send me the ugly little emails y'all like to send me. Um, I'm going to ignore them anyway. Um, but, but the <laughs> fact is that he did not, I mean, what we said about him in 2008 was just the truth. The brother was a rookie. He did not understand politics as we play it. He did not understand the Democratic National Committee and the fact that it had the possibility of long coattails. And because he didn't, he saw his victory as the nation's victory when it really, really wasn't. You see what happened in 2010? I mean, the world turned, not the world, but the Congress, he didn't have it anymore. Pelosi lost her seat. I mean, her, her leadership, we didn't have it anymore. So, you know, but that's, you know, we don't have to look back. Let's look forward. And forward, Jamie Harrison, they just, DNC has just agreed to spend, I think it's $22 million on local um, elections. I think that's a good thing. Uh, Jamie Harrison has his work cut out for him. He's got to do a heck of fundraising 
to get some more money into communities. But the other thing that you mentioned earlier, Rowan, that's really important, is the fact that they basically the DNC has become pimp daddy for the white boys. Pimp daddy for the white boys. How come, you know, Cornell Belcher did this, he's one of the best we have, did the survey for, he should have been doing the survey for the DNC. We need to have more operatives. People like Leah uh, Daltrey, Mignon Moore, folks who have, as you say, were there with Reverend Jackson and Ron Walters and uh, our beloved Ron Brown. Those folks, if they're if they're at the end of their careers, help them help them find some young people to do this. I mean, DNC ought to be doing all kind of workshops to get more young people into politics. Because you know, Oma Congo is right. When people say stuff like "I don't do that politics thing," it's because they don't understand what that politics thing is. From the quality of the water you drink to where your children go to school, you know, to um, how much money you pay for your utilities. All this stuff is politics. And so I have no patience, and I'm saying this on, on national television where my brother says, I don't do that politics thing. And I'm like, well, then just don't talk to me, dude. Just go sit in the corner and eat some cornbread. Um, because basically, the politics thing is where we are. And as, as, as J.B. Harrison has his work cut out for him. I hope he can do it, but we've all got to support him. Um, again, Michael, what this report is talking about is infrastructure. It's talking about what has to be in place year-round, where you have the personnel, where you have the messaging that's tailored uh, to different groups. And again, there was a, I mean, it wasn't by far, it wasn't perfect, uh, but you actually had a strong black infrastructure that was inside the Democratic National Committee. And then when Obama came along, he, and, and yeah, did he need it? No, he didn't need it, because frankly, his black support was so significant. But a party ain't about one person, and 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 I and I had close folks uh, in the Obama world. I'm talking about who worked in the administration who said, "Yeah, one of the biggest mistakes we ever did was organizing for America and basically shifting all of that attention and resources over to them and uh, taking away from the DNC." Uh, well, first of all, um, Dr. Malvo and Roland, thanks for the shout out to my pops. You know, I appreciate that. Um, it's just fact. Know, when... I mean, we're just stating fact. No, no, and I pr yeah. appreciate it. The uh, I'm glad you remember the, and you remember the they created what was called the coordinated campaign, and you had mentioned all the different folks that have been helpful. Uh, Dr. Malvo mentioned them. You mentioned them. All of that is absolutely correct. Uh, the Ron Lester's of the world. I mean, he was really the first. He was a pioneer in black polling, and uh, the DNC would never give him a pro what's called a prime contract. They would subcontract them just to go do polling in black neighborhoods around the country. But when my father was chair, he got a prime contract. And then that way he was able to develop his business, grow it so he could be around for 20 years like other pollsters. Same thing. So the coordinated campaign was basically you wouldn't have to create the wheel every time there's an election. You have the infrastructure in place on presidential side for, for targeted Senate races or House races for city council races, for state legislative body, whatever you name the you name the political body. And over time, as you mentioned correctly, Roland, it started to get gutted where people, because everyone wanted to have their own thing when they were chair of the party. But it worked. Remember, Bill Clinton beat Ronald Reagan's vice president. I mean, you know, Ronald Reagan is on the Mount Rushmore for Republicans, and we took down 
the vice president after one term, which was obviously Bush. Because of the efforts, obviously, in every single community and the great messaging and the great infrastructure. And the point was, if we can do it like that to beat Reagan's vice president, maybe it can work every election, so let's not gut it. And then when we finally got to the Obama years, he had zero interest in the DNC. He had zero interest in state legislative bodies around the country where we got destroyed in his eight years. Like you, Dr. Malvo, Roland, I'm going to get the same kind of little tweets and ugly emails. How can you talk about Obama? We're not talking about Obama. We're just giving facts. And you can check out the facts yourself if you don't believe. Check out the, how, how many Democrats and Republicans were in state legislature controlled by Democrats in 2008 and how many in 2016. Do the math yourself and you'll see what happened. So that's where we have to really focus. And people don't, I know people see the DNC as a fundraising arm, and it is. It's certainly about raising money. But it's also about the infrastructure of getting people out to vote and keeping them engaged. Folks, going to go to a break. We come back. We're going to talk about uh, Maryland, where uh, a top prosecutor is launching an investigation into targeting of black folks there. Also, Wes Moore announces he's running for governor of Maryland. We have all of that next on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Back in a moment. Racial injustice is a scourge on this nation, and the black community has felt it for generations. We have an obligation to do something about it. Whether it's canceling student debt, increasing the minimum wage, or investing in Black-owned businesses, the Black community deserves so much better. I'm Nina Turner, and I'm running for Congress to do something about it. Before Till's murder, we saw struggle for civil rights as something grown-ups did. I feel that the generations before us have offered a, a lot of instruction. Organizing is really one of the only things that gives me the sanity and makes me feel purposeful. When Emmett Till was murdered, yeah. that's what attracted our attention. I'm Kirsten Cinema. I found the time to train and run the Boston Marathon. I think it'll be the most emotional run of my entire life. I found the time to train and complete the Ironman competition in New Zealand. And almost a dozen other races. And I had plenty of time to summit Mount Kilimanjaro. But I just couldn't find the time to come to Washington, do my job, and vote for the January 6th commission to investigate the domestic terrorist attack on the U.S. Capitol. Kirsten Cinema, Bad for Arizona, bad for America. Let's get a real Democratic senator in Arizona. Black women have always been essential. Mm -hmm. So now mm -hmm. how are you going to pay us like that? And it's not just the, the salary. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are a whole number of issues that have to support us as women. Yeah. But that's what we deserve. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't have to beg anybody for that. I think that we are trying to do our best as a generation to honor the fact that we didn't come here alone and we didn't come here by accident. I always say every generation has to define for itself yeah. what it means to move the needle forward. Mm -hmm. 
Yo, what's up? This your boy Ice Cube. What's up? I'm Lance Gross, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. All right, folks, Virginia, uh, they're going to be going to the polls tomorrow uh, to uh, elect uh, candidates uh, in the primary. Uh, and one of the races everybody's focused on is uh, the uh, governor's race. There are a number of candidates who are running, including uh, former Governor uh, Terry McAuliffe. Uh, look at the polls. Uh, he is leading in a significant way. You also have Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax who's also running. Uh, and then you have uh, two black women. Uh, one of them is Jennifer McClellan. We uh, had uh, one of the candidates on last week. McClellan joins us right now. I'm glad to have you here on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Uh, of course, uh, she represented the greater Richmond area for 11 years in the House of Delegates. And for four years in the Senate, she also serves as vice chair of the Virginia Black Caucus. Glad to have you uh, on the on the show. Um, final stages. Uh, how are you making the case uh, for the folks in Virginia uh, to vote for you? Looking at polling data that shows a huge lead by the former governor, Terry McAuliffe. Well, we are not undaunted by polls that only talk to about 600 people. We have been talking to hundreds of thousands of Virginians at their doors, on the phones, and uh, our field numbers look really great, and they're excited for a new perspective, the next generation of leadership, a black woman, uh, and someone who has experience uh, both in the party and governing to get things done on day one and to win in November. Obviously, when you look at the number of people who are running, having three African-Americans run, running uh, is something that we rarely ever see. Uh, and some folks are saying that that's splitting the black vote and Democratic primary, primary and making it easier for McCullough to coast to victory. What would you say to that? I would say that I am building a broad coalition of uh, Virginia voters of all walks of life, of all races, of all uh, backgrounds, of all ages. And uh, we are poised to win. And uh, I'm just excited. And Virginia excited, is excited to make history and build a stronger future. When you talk about the issues that, that are most important, what jumps out? Uh, what are you conveying to uh, black voters? And that's certainly uh, our audience. Well, you know, we have got to rebuild our economy, our health care and economic safety nets and our education system in a way that addresses the inequity that was already there before COVID. Um, and we need to do it in a way that doesn't just create a seat at the table for the black community, but takes the policymaking table out into our communities, centering our communities and perspectives. And so uh, we need to build on the progress we've made in the past couple of years as we navigate through this reckoning with racial injustice, which here in Virginia started before this summer. Uh, and so we are ready uh, for someone who brings that perspective. And that's how we get things done. Uh, questions for my panel. Uh, first off, Julianne Julian Mavo, your question for Jennifer McClellan. Hi, Jennifer. It's good to see you again. Uh, good, good luck to tomorrow. See you. Uh, my question, you have two black women in this race. And of course, as Roland said, we very rarely see three black candidates. Um, did you all ever have any conversation about perhaps one of you not running so that the, the black vote could be more consolidated? We had conversations, but, uh, you know, People decide to run based on what they think they can bring, and no one ever questions two white men running together or, or two white women. And so we, my campaign just focused on building a broad coalition, focusing on the work that I have been doing uh, for 16 years almost in the legislature and 31 years in the party and in the community. And we're just uh, running on that record and running on that experience. Great. Question, uh, McCongo? Well, I wish you the best of luck uh, in this election runoff uh, um, tomorrow. I, I really feel like you have a very strong platform. And 
My question is related to education. Coming off of the pandemic, where there were so many conversations about students who were not getting access to the same level of resources, now we're coming into a situation going into the fall where students are coming back, and people are talking about it as if it's going to be this safe haven for students. But we know that many of our Black students, in particular, are going to be coming back into a system where they're disciplined more, where they don't have culturally relevant instruction. What are some of your thoughts as it relates to what we need to do going into the fall to make sure that our Black students and other students in neighborhoods where they may not have the best resources are getting what they need in our educational system in Virginia? Well, on the school-to-prison pipeline and disproportionate discipline and referral to law enforcement, I'm going to build on the progress that I make during legislation to begin to break that. But we've got to make sure we are fully funding our education system, getting support personnel back in our schools, our nurses, our mental health professionals, our social workers, our guidance counselors, to provide some of the wraparound services that our students need, especially those that face trauma every day. And we got to make sure we're funding it in a way that doesn't depend on what zip code you're in, because we know those zip codes are based on uh, dis policy decisions long ago, whether it was redlining or, or, uh, or segregation itself, that had communities that are cut off from economic opportunity. And those legacies didn't go away with the magic wand. We have got to intentionally fund our education system in a way that addresses that inequity and also um, make sure the buildings aren't falling down and, and the, having the state uh, fund construction and renovation of schools that are falling apart, many of them in our communities. Michael Brown, your question for Jennifer McClellan. Well, Senator, good luck, uh, good luck, and uh, we wish you well. Um, question, not to get too much in the weeds of kind of what your data shows, but clearly one of the reasons, one of the reasons, I'm not saying the only reason, but one of the reasons Virginia has become blue is because of Northern Virginia. Northern Virginia is becoming, obviously, the tail that wags the dog uh, in Virginia, at least if you listen to a lot of the Northern Virginia politicians. Um, how are you doing, I'm um, in D.C., how are you doing up here in the Northern Virginia uh, part of the state? I know you're probably going to do well in Tidewater, obviously, and uh, Hampton Roads and all that, but how about up here, where, obviously, there's so many voters that vote, and how are you going to, how are you uh, participating in uh, working out up here? I'm doing very well. There's a lot of excitement. I've been up in Northern Virginia a lot. Uh, the straw poll, Fairfax County is the largest county, and uh, their Democratic committee, I won that straw poll handily. It was ranked choice voting, but I won every round. Uh, some of the magisterial districts up there had straw polls. I won those. But our ground game has been very strong uh, in Northern Virginia as well as other parts of the state, and the excitement that we see up there is is palpable. But we're not leaving any part of Virginia behind because in a contested primary, uh, there are votes everywhere. And I've also been to parts of the state that no other candidate has gone and hasn't gone in a very long time. Well, good. Again, good luck, and uh, we wish you well. Thank you. So uh, last, la la last question, uh, and that is this here. Uh, obviously, uh, folks are going to the polls uh, tomorrow, and so uh, where, you, where will you be? What will you be doing? Uh, and an another thing that also, that also um, uh, jumped out that I was curious about in terms of uh, we look at uh, contracts and things along those lines, what your plan is for African Americans when it comes to getting business in the state of Virginia. Well, first of all, we have had disparity study after disparity study, but we've never implemented all of the recommendations. So that's the first step. We're in the middle of a disparity study now. I'll make sure the recommendations get implemented. Uh, we had a bill that I uh, co-patron that 
uh, almost passed during this past session, but Republicans blocked it on a procedural vote. So as governor, I will make sure we get that in to really make procurement more fair for our SWAM businesses. But we've also got to make sure our SWAM businesses have access to capital. That was a problem before COVID. It's definitely a problem now. All right, then. Well, certainly good luck. Uh, and we'll be uh, watching to see what transpires tomorrow uh, in Virginia. Thank you. Have a great night. All right. Thank you so very much. Uh, all right, folks. Uh, today, uh, Wes Moore, you know, he is the book author, also ran a nonprofit. Uh, Wes um, dropped uh, a notice on um, uh, social media that uh, he is running for governor of Maryland. Now, Larry Hogan, of course, uh, is uh, is not running, of course, term limited, and so he would not be seeking it. Uh, we expect uh, the uh, Republican black lieutenant governor to be uh, running for the House office as well. Uh, this was the video here uh, that Wes Moore uh, released today announcing his candidacy. My name is Westmore. To be, uh, running when I was three, as well. uh, I watched my dad die here, in our home. Uh, that Westmore, uh, By 11, today I felt the feeling of handcuffs. Let me go ahead and uh, fix that uh, so we get in a double audio here. So just give me one second. Uh, one second here. I think we got it uh, taken care of. Uh, all right, here we go. Go ahead. My name is Westmore. When I was three, I watched my dad die in our home. By 11, I felt the feeling of handcuffs on my wrists. My life could have gone a different way, but I was lucky. I had a mom who believed in me before I believed in myself. Kids like me, we didn't think there was a world where anything was possible. We like to say that my mom wore sweaters so we could wear coats. And the dreams she had for herself were replaced by the hopes she had for us. When I lost my way, she sent me to military school, where I learned about leadership, standing up for what's right, and putting others first. I earned a Rhodes Scholarship. I joined the Army and became a captain in the 82nd Airborne Division, where I led soldiers in combat in Afghanistan. I served in the White House. I wrote books about the sad and fragile nature of economic opportunity in America. I built a successful business in Baltimore to help kids go to college. And for the past four years, I've been the CEO of one of the country's largest organizations fighting to end poverty. By working the halls of government and the streets of our communities, we fought for bold measures to lift families out of poverty. Ultimately, we distributed over $600 million to support families around the country, including right here in Maryland. Through all of this, one thing has become clear to me. Opportunity is readily available to some and dangerously absent to others. Here in Maryland, we have some of the nation's most prosperous communities and some of its most impoverished. World-class medical institutions and people who can't afford basic care. Some of the best schools and some of the most underfunded. Too many people work too hard, do everything the right way, but it's never enough. What could our kids be if we actually gave them more opportunities than we had? How much better than us can they be? And this pandemic has made these inequities even worse. But right now, we stand ready to lead, ready to do something about it. I believe no matter what road you start down, you deserve a path to success. Unlike most who run for office, I know what it's like to struggle. And I know what it is to achieve dreams my parents couldn't have even imagined. I know what we are capable of if we choose hope. If we come together to fight for each other, to open doors for each other across every neighborhood and every corner of this state. 
I'm Wes Moore, and this is what I'll fight for as the governor of Maryland. That's in Maryland. Now, folks, in the same state, a top Maryland prosecutor is launching an investigation into his own office. Check this out, folks. State's attorney John McCarthy is analyzing his office to determine whether the race and ethnicity of victims and suspects affected prosecutorial decisions. The study will focus on what cases to pursue, what kind of plea deals to offer, and what sentences to request. McCarthy says the study responds to the increased demand to examine all parts of the criminal justice system for possible racial disparities. Outside researchers will conduct the investigation. It's a hell of an idea, Omakongo. Omakongo? going to have any teeth when they release the findings. Look, back in 1993, the Maryland came through with something called the Maryland Governor's Commission on African-American Males. They brought business members together. They brought clergy. They brought other educators, youth centers. Everybody was in on this report that took 10 years. They issued it in 2003, 2004. At that time, the late 2007 or 8, I was working in Montgomery County Schools with educators. And I asked them, what did they think about the findings of this plan? None of the teachers I was working with ever saw it. Why? Because the principals didn't introduce it to the teachers. So Montgomery County is, 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 is strong and positive as it relates to putting out these efforts and these studies. But I'm concerned that similar to what the Maryland Governor's Commission on African Americans uh, males and how it wasn't implemented, I'm afraid that they'll release this, but there's not going to be much teeth behind it. And if there's no teeth behind it, then it's just going to look nice in terms of an announcement, but no real change is going to come. And that's my concern, well, having worked in Montgomery County. Michael Brown, these things are important because, again, when we talk about criminal justice reform, mass incarceration, DAs, they are at uh, the center of all of this. They are. And uh, clearly, we you, you hope the report comes back and it's, uh, and it's fair and objective. But I think you do have to, in, in cases where excuse me, the DA's office is led by somebody that does not look like us, you have to give credit where credit is due that they're trying, that they see that maybe there is a problem. Whether, you know, who knows what his, where his heart really is, we have to assume uh, that he's in the right place because he is taking steps to say maybe we haven't been as fair as we can be to people of color in Montgomery County. So hopefully the, the report will come back and it'll be helpful. People will follow... Uh, follow the lead of the report. Obviously, the police have a whole lot to do with it relative to uh, how police are treating their uh, their residents in Montgomery County. So we just have to wait and see. But kudos for for trying. Julian? I agree with Michael. I'm glad that they're trying. But I also agree with Obakongo. It's like you try, you have these reports. Reports, you know, that that's a treat. Y'all, that's just a treat uh, that somebody killed for the paper. So the question is, what happens next? Uh, in terms of these recommendations, there's too many discretion points in the prosecutorial process, beginning with whether charges are pressed, what kind of sentences are offered, all of those. And so, you know, I got to give props to Sean King and some of the others who've been looking at elected DAs to see how more of those positions can come to us so that we can begin to do some of the work uh, around the fairness issue. But um, good, thanks for trying, but trying is not going to be good enough. You can have the best report in the world, but if you don't do anything about the report, you just have a report. Uh, talk about uh, craziness. While one prosecutor is trying to do the right thing in Pennsylvania, another allows his personal feelings to cloud his judgment by forbidding his deputy prosecutors from making plea deals with a black lawyer who stood against systemic racism in criminal courts. Y'all, check this out. 
Allegheny County DA Stephen A. Zapala Jr. emailed several deputy prosecutors about attorney Milton uh, Rayford. In his email, he wrote this. On May 13th, we experienced another issue of unprofessional conduct in the courtroom of Judge Anthony Mariani, this one involving attorney Milt, Milt Rayford. The transcript will, will, will evidence what is presently considered a convoluted critical diatribe. You're being advised of what actions will be taken. No plea offers are to be made. Uh, uh, really? Many are calling for Zabala's re forced removal from office. Uh, what do you make of this, Michael? Uh, this DA not happy at all and no plea deals. So basically screw his clients because you're mad at him. A little petty, huh? That's pretty, uh, a little petty. That seems to be the definition of petty and um, petty and uh, maybe a little bit of racism. So we don't know if other uh, white attorneys sometimes editorialize about particular issues related to the criminal justice system or just life uh, in courtrooms. And if they're uh, admonished, like, well, admonished by this gentleman. So, yeah, it's petty. It's pitiful. Uh, and hopefully it gets just uh, tossed out. Julian, uh, boy, little DA mad because the black attorney called out systemic racism. Ain't that a shame? <laughs> Ain't that a shame? I mean, this was like a, you know, toxic cocktail of arrogance, um, racism, uh, ignorance, and a few more things <clears throat> on the part of this Zapala person. And he should be um, removed. Somebody needs to start a recall on him. Because to say no plea deals is really to say, uh, again, you're denying this brother's clients a courtesy that many others have. And that, by definition, is just a bias, racial bias at that. Because you're mad because the brother said there was systemic racism. Well, go and get your lollipop, go to the corner and do something with it. Um, but do not penalize the clients. And don't, I mean, the brothers ought to sue him for libel. He should not be sending emails to all his colleagues about this man because basically he's inviting them to do the same thing. Goes to show you, Omicongo, when you stand up to power, boy, they get a little bit upset. Sounds to me like that's one DA we should be taking out in this next election. It's got to go. And that's another reason why this voting is so important. And look, this is just another example right now of, of weaponizing all of this rhetoric about critical race theory and systemic racism. They're using any type of power they have to stifle any conversations. And now this attorney's clients have to suffer because this he, because the pilot feels like he needs to make a stand. And we're seeing it happen all across the country now. We're talking about it from a legal case right now. But then you can also go to schools and what's happening in Oklahoma where they're banning teaching about critical race theory. This is another example of it. And it's manifesting itself in different areas across this country. And we need to call it out like you're doing tonight. And we need to, as Dr. Malvo said, look at recalls. And if that's not going to work, we got to vote these folks out because they do not care. All they want is power. And this is a, a extreme abuse of power. Uh, all right, folks. Uh, earlier, we were talking about uh, the Democrats, uh, the analysis, what should be done for the 2020, 2022 midterm elections. What about that 2020 election? What can be learned from that? There's a new book out called Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaigns to Defeat Trump. It details how the Democratic Party successfully regained the White House. The book is a fly-on-the-wall account of the Democrats' journey through recalibration and rebirth. It certainly brings you on the campaign trail in private rooms and along for critical conversations. Joining us right now uh, is Edward Isaac Novaire. Uh, uh, Edward Isaac, how you doing? Hey, Ron. How are you? Uh, glad to have you on the show. So 
Here's the thing that, that that's interesting, um, and, and, and if you can speak to this, I mean, Democrats put a whole lot of emphasis, obviously, uh, in taking back the White House. Um, they, of course, uh, took control of the Senate because of those uh, elections in Georgia with John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, but we still saw losses on the House side. We still saw uh, them not pick up. They were five seats away from taking control of the Texas House, not winning those as well. Uh, and so you're still dealing with a party that I, that I dare say uh, goes back to the James Carville, Paul Bagalia, uh, Rahm Emanuel idea of let's be a national party. But so much of the power is happening on the state level. I think that's a very good point, Roland, and, and this is something that Democrats have had to deal with. You know, one of the things that I point out in the book is that you look at the change, uh, uh, and not all of it is Barack Obama's fault. A lot of it is the fault of gerrymandering. But in the Obama presidency, from a seat, state legislature seats uh, from in 2008 when he came in uh, to 2016, at the end of his presidency, about 1,000 went from Democrats to Republicans. That has changed things a lot for uh, the day-to-day -day life of, of people, much more so, honestly, than what happens in control of the House and the Senate, even though we spend a lot of time thinking about that. And another thing that Democrats need to think about going forward here is uh, there, there are uh, big questions that are posed over the course of the book and then are uh, really grappled with at the end of it, that Biden ended up being more popular than a lot of Democrats. And that goes for Democrats of, uh, of all sorts, but it, it, it just shows that Biden, the, the whether Democrats are going to be able to do well going forward is whether they can build a coalition that doesn't require Joe Biden and also doesn't require running against Donald Trump. The thing that uh, when you look at this election, and it was it was all over the place, and there were people who were angry by saying, you know, how in the hell did Joe Biden get picked? Um, you know, he was running a lackluster campaign, couldn't raise money. But here's the deal. Everybody had a shot. Uh, and, and I remember, uh, you know, we were talking about it on this show. People, people kept asking, how did these black people in South Carolina, what was wrong with them? How did they vote? Here's the deal. Black people have always voted, hmm, how are white folks going to vote? So we got to figure out who the hell we going to support based on how the white folks going to vote. And I keep reminding everybody out there, uh, and if you have any data that's different, show 69% of the total electorate were white voters. 69%. So this idea that, you know what, you can, you can win solely on black votes and Latino votes and Asian votes is not there. You got to pick up a good portion of white support, even as 38 to 41 to 42 percent, to win. Yeah, Roland, what you're saying reminds me of a conversation that I have in the book with uh, a guy named Fletcher Smith, who's a former state representative in South Carolina. And we were talking the night before Biden won the South Carolina primary after a, an event that Biden did in sort of the northern part of South Carolina. And uh, Smith said to me, you know, sometimes it takes black people showing white people what they need to do. And there was uh, clearly throughout the Biden primary campaign, even when things weren't going well for him, a huge amount of black support that, that sort of floated him and gave him a place in the polls when otherwise the, the support wasn't there. And it just became a very, very important piece of what was going on. As I think you're right, black voters, and this is, a, I trace this, what's going on, look at other candidates, whether it's Pete Buttigieg, who obviously was well known for having a problem with black voters, but also, you know, Deval Patrick, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, the black candidates in the race, and thinking, oh, can they really win? 
Look, that was a similar conversation that was happening in 2008 when it was Obama and Clinton uh, in, in the primary fight there. And uh, as I'm sure you know well, uh, Obama was greeted with skepticism initially until he started to win, especially in Iowa, where there are not a lot of black voters. But even Obama wasn't, wasn't fully supportive of Joe Biden. He didn't want, I mean, he didn't want him, to, he did not want him to challenge Hillary Clinton in 2016. And, and, I, and I actually said then, dude, Biden could actually beat her. And see, it was, it was, it was interesting, I mean, all these dynamics. And, and I think, I, I believe in, and in, 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 in speak to, you know, what you're able to, to cover in the book, the empathy, the empathy of Biden and how he connects with people is what made a difference. And like it or not, after four years of crazy-ass Trump, folks were like, can I get sane back? And, and I think it wasn't just sane, although that was a big piece of it. I think it was empathy, like you said, people feeling like they could connect with him. A big part of that, of course, is the, the connection that people felt to him about uh, his son, Bo, dying in 2015. And it was a, a reconnection on so many levels for, for people. That's another thing that I trace in the book, how this relationship with Bo is essential to understanding Biden and essential to understanding his connection with, with voters. But, you know, that same night that I was just talking about with that guy, Fletcher Smith, right after I talked to him, I was watching Biden on a rope line. It was right before the pandemic hit. It was before he had Secret Service protection. I could get up close. And there was a woman who was standing waiting to talk to him, and she was so scared to talk that she had written out on a piece of paper her uh, the story of her daughter who needed some medical attention, and she handed it to him, and she was shaking and crying, and Biden holds it up, and he looks at her, and he says, look, let me get your number. Maybe I can do something to help. And I, there are obviously a lot of people who've had experiences like that with Joe Biden, of some sort, connecting with him. There are a lot of, most people haven't had that direct connection with him, but they see him doing that. They, and they get that feeling that that's who he is. And that meant a lot to voters, I think, especially as we were as a, a country in such turmoil and grief of last year when it came to the not just the pandemic, but everything after George Floyd was killed, this feeling like we just need someone who cares. And voters really responded to that with Biden. I'm going to go to my panel with questions for you uh, next. I got to ask you this. Uh, Team Obama was not particularly happy with some comments that people made about him. Uh, and, and we discussed this a little bit earlier. We talked about uh, frankly, how he didn't give a damn about the D Democratic National Committee. And there were a lot of people who, I, I remember last year, who were saying, oh, now all of a sudden you care? Now you care about gerrymandering? Now you care about redistricting? When you actually had the power for eight years and you didn't show a lick of caring then? Look, it's one of the aspects of the Obama presidency. There are a lot of things that people can like about it. Uh, but Barack Obama felt that he had other things that were higher in the priority list being president than building out the party structure and investing the time and attention into the DNC. What you see happen after, and you know, the book starts with Obama and Biden on election night 2016, watching Trump win, these stories that have never been told before, and Obama's reaction to it, and t traces a lot with Obama over the, the uh, Trump years, ways that nobody really realized what was happening, how he was watching, how he was getting upset about these things, what he was doing to invest. And one of the things that he was doing was getting more involved in the fight against gerrymandering, getting more involved in the DNC, 
and also getting more involved in guiding the, the party in a way that was completely behind the scenes. Almost no one knew that it was happening. These phone calls with Biden, Sanders, Warren, Buttigieg, everybody walking them through, doing a lot of things that he thought were now uh, important to try to get the Democratic Party back into shape. That's him acting as a party elder when he's the former president, but he wasn't doing it to the same extent when he was the party leader as the current president. Questions. I'm going to start with my panel. Michael Brown, uh, you first for Edward, Edward Isaac. Isaac, how are you? I haven't had a, uh, the honor yet of reading your book, but I, I am uh, I'm very curious to look at it now. So uh, thank you for your piece. I'll pick one up. Um, <laughs> uh, absolutely. Um, I, I'm wondering when you, uh, I, I know there's a lot of conflict related to the Obama presidency, and uh, clearly he was wrong. I understand that he had other priorities, but um, you know, clearly, when you have the kind of staff and resources, you can certainly say, OK, you got to focus on building the party. But that's a whole nother discussion. But when you were uh, when you were doing your research, um, did you find you just mentioned the whole thing about he didn't want Biden to run about or run against Secretary Clinton? What were the reasons behind he didn't want Biden to run against Secretary Clinton? Besides this, I guess he thought she would win or. What was the reason? Well, he thought she would win. Um, he thought that she had gotten stronger since the time that they'd run against each other in 2008. And he also was concerned that Biden didn't have uh, some of what he thought it took to be uh, running for president. Uh, there were questions about his age already in 2015 when he was looking at running then. Uh, Obama remained even more skeptical about that, obviously, as time went on and Biden got older. There were, uh, Obama felt like, uh, did Biden have the ability to connect with crowds? Did he have uh, what Obama refers to as swagger, you know, that, that way of just making people believe in you? He was very skeptical of that. I think importantly in 2015, when he uh, was trying to steer Biden out of running, he was also looking at a man who had just lost his son and was in really uh, a massive state mentally, as, as Biden himself has said, and was just grieving all the time. But even into the 2020 race, Obama was skeptical in the same way that a lot of people were about Biden. Could he do it? Could he really win? Could he beat Trump? And, and, uh, and he was asking those questions of... Uh, allies of his and to an extent of Biden's aides, as I think a lot of other people were. Thank you. Omakongo. Well, first of all, I want to congratulate you on, on a great book and so well-researched and um, well-documented. I want to go back to something that, that, that Roland was saying when he talked about 69 percent of the, of the white electorate. I'm wondering if you're concerned if going into 2024, as Biden does this work to embrace things like police reform and, you know, George Floyd Act and, and, and some of these voting rights bills and they're like, do you feel like there's a possibility that more white voters are actually going to become alienated by his attempts to make the party more diverse and, and appeal primarily, like you said, he's not going to forget the African-American community because he, we had his back. Many people feel like he's doing that to some extent, but do you feel like he's going to risk alienating more white voters as we go into 2024? No, look, I've learned not to make predictions in politics, if 2016 <laughs> taught me anything. But I will say this to you. I think we, uh, in some ways, underestimate Biden's ability to serve as a, a almost a Trojan horse for getting things through and making people feel, even if they're, uh, they're, they're more out there ideas, uh, not, you know, not where the moderate idea is, but where Biden says, look, I can do that and move it in. There are realities of what's going on. He is an older white man. He does not spark the same kind of reaction in people that, uh, you know, Barack Obama did for reasons that you are all very familiar with. But 
one of the uh, things that I trace in the book a lot is last summer when after Floyd is killed and, and after the protests are, are uh, picking up, there's this transformation that Biden has in thinking about these issues. He goes to see Floyd's family uh, before the funeral and meets with them privately. He's talked about how he saw Floyd's daughter, Gianna, and uh, she said, my daddy is going to change the world. He connected with her about that grief, that personal story. There's also an important moment where Al Sharpton says to him, you know, it, we all, it's not just he had a, a knee on his neck. We've all felt a knee on our neck. And Biden says to him, I've never thought of it that way before. And then, as you remember, the, the protests grew a little violent in places, and Sharpton condemned the violence. Now, Biden gets on the phone with him a little bit afterwards, a couple days later, and he says, listen, I'm glad you said that, condemning the violence, because it's really helpful to our cause. Sharpton, and I talked about it, and he said to me, that's such an important thing. He didn't say it's helpful to the cause or your cause, to our cause. But also thinking about how Biden was pushing back. There were people on his campaign who said, you've got to be for defund the police. And he said, no, 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 I don't want to do that. I've got to make sure we uh, approach this right. After Kenosha, there's more pressure for him to go. And he says, no, let's do this in a way that takes the temperature down, that uh, doesn't risk losing those voters that could be really turned off if we go at this in a way that he thought would be uh, too aggressive and too uh, too much veering toward what was seen as the left or, or just racial politics. I was asked, uh, book authors, this question, and I'll ask you the same question, and that is this here. Um, what was your wow moment? Uh, every book author has, when they're doing their research, they're doing interviews where they go, Wow, that was uh, crazy. Uh, I get the sense to, uh, that you've actually had uh, several of those. Uh, so if you got a couple that you could share, that'd be great. Uh, I mean, the, the, the book is full of them, quite honestly. Uh, one of the things that's gotten a lot of reporting is you see the Biden team's reaction and Biden himself uh, reacting to what happened in that first debate with Kamala Harris and the, the real. It was clear to me that he, because I was covering the race day to day, how angry he felt about what had happened. Uh, and uh, and but he responded as been some headlines about with uh, some uh, that was some f and bs. He says to Pete Buttigieg afterwards on stage, and then Jill Biden uh, gets mad uh, on his behalf a couple days afterwards and says to stand up there with all the work he's done and call him a racist. Go after yourself. But I think actually one of the things because toward the end of the book is that the book ends with the riot and the inauguration and then an interview that I did with Joe Biden on February 2nd. It was his first interview as president. We talked about a lot of these things. Uh, but the book was actually supposed to be done two days before the riot, and we ended up building in more time to report on that. Some of the scenes from the riot, uh, whether it's Cory Booker uh, feeling like he needs to stay on the Senate floor and maybe have a fist fight with the rioters as they're coming in to protect his older colleagues, or Lisa Blunt Rochester, the congresswoman from Delaware, who said to me that she had to take her member pin. She was worried that they would come to attack members of Congress. So she takes her member pin off of her jacket, but is also worried that as a black woman walking around the Capitol, she won't be protected unless people know she's a member of Congress. So she puts it in her hand so that she can show it to people. But that's going on in 2021 America. Wow, right? And then also, you see that there's a lot of unreported detail about the level of legal planning that the Biden team was up to, thinking that Trump was going to do something to try to challenge the election <laughs> results. 
thinking that they had to prepare and get everything together. They had 600 lawyers working on it, millions of dollars in a secret effort that went into it. And they got through everything, including to think, what do we do if Mike Pence is standing up there and reaches into his jacket and pulls out a separate slate of electors? How do we deal with that? And they planned for all those eventualities. But of course, the eventuality they didn't plan for was rioters coming into the Capitol building. <laughs> uh, that is uh, quite interesting. Julia Malvo, your question. I don't well, forget about you. I'm very curious. Uh, first of all, congrats on the book. It sounds like it's a really great one. I look forward to reading it. How did Biden get from where he was that evening in that debate where uh, Madam Vice President really kind of went off on him? to choosing her as vice president. We've heard the inside stories, and of course, she was close to Bo. But what can you tell us that we don't know that's not public about he got from there to there? If he knows, it's yeah, in like... the book. <laughs> it's in the book. It is in the book. Uh, <laughs> um, and I encourage you to read it, but I'll, I'll give you a little preview. Uh, yes, she was close to Bo. I think we can overplay. Uh, how close they were. They became friends in their 40s uh, when he was attorney general in Delaware and she was attorney general in California. It's not like they were old school buddies and had that closeness. But there was something there, and Joe Biden spends a lot of uh, attention and time thinking about things related to Bo Biden, so that there was a connection through Bo made a difference. But he... It, he goes through the year after uh, the debate, because it's about a, a year, that was at the end of June 2019, and then it's June, July of last year when he's deciding who to pick as his running mate. There are a lot of factors. He said he'd pick a woman. Uh, after Floyd was killed, there was a lot of pressure for him to pick a black woman. And he's stressing, stressing, can I have the right kind of working relationship with my vice president that I want to have with Kamala Harris, given that that was there, even though I've moved on? Has she moved on? Has my aides moved on? Will the supporters move on? And uh, one of the people that he talks to about this is Barack Obama. And he says, look, I want to have the kind of relationship that we had, where we were tight, we worked on everything together, and we're personally so close, and our families are close and everything. And Obama says to him, listen, Joe, what you need to do is you need to think about this as, number one, it takes time. Remember, you called me unqualified to be president when I was running for president. That's what you said about me when we were running against each other. We had the first year that we were in the White House together, it wasn't working out so well. We weren't really close at all, and we couldn't even like have a normal working relationship between our staffs. It takes time. Build that time up. But also, you need to think primarily about what's going to help you win. And if you think Kamala Harris is the best choice to help you win, that's how you have to do this. Because it doesn't matter who you think you want to have lunch with or whether your family is going to be close if you lose. And uh, Biden comes around on that and thinks it's a question of his head and his heart. And he's you know, torn about this, whether you should pick Gretchen Whitmer. He looks at some of the other candidates, too, like uh, Susan Rice and, and Elizabeth Warren and, uh, and some of the others. But ultimately, he says, no, Kamala Harris is the one to help me win the best. And look, I will say this. We're only a couple months into the administration. But they, the two of them, who didn't really know each other except professionally a little bit before Harris and Biden, have developed a pretty strong working relationship uh, during the transition in the first couple months of the presidency. They have gotten to know each other in a way that uh, neither of them was, was really expecting. They know each other well. They spend a lot of time together. And so far, we haven't seen really anything that would be any kind of cracks in the relationship between them. Well, I, I dare say, I would probably say, I, I think what we've seen thus far, 
the relationship that they have is even stronger than what he had with Obama. Uh, I, I've never, I've never seen a president defer to and, and include his vice president the way Biden has with announcements or even where she speaks before he does. I, I, I've never seen that in my lifetime. I think that, look, you're pointing to something important. When she spoke before him was on the night of the Chauvin verdict, right? And that is because he respects her role in the vice presidency. He also knows that she carries a lot of obvious symbolic value. Uh, when there were issues, whether, let's say it was Trayvon Martin, uh, it's not like Barack Obama needed Joe Biden to speak first at that moment, right? Absolutely. Uh, folks, uh, the book, please pull it up, Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaigns to Defeat Trump. Edward Isaac uh, Dover, we certainly appreciate it. Thanks a bunch. Uh, some great stuff in there, and I think people will enjoy it. Thanks a lot, Roland. Uh, thank you very much. All right, folks, we want you all to support what we do here at Roland Martin Unfiltered. Of course, uh, we're all about uh, showcasing the kind of information that you're not going to get anywhere else. So we want you to do that by joining our Bring the Funk fan club. Fan club. Our goal is very simple. Uh, people have asked me, you should you should do a subscription. You should, you should make people uh, pay a certain amount every single month for your show. I've had people even encourage me to take this show uh, to subscription base, uh, going to, even when we, when we launch our OTT platforms. And I actually, I said no. And the reason I said no is because we've had people who contributed to our show uh, who joined our fan club, and they didn't have $4.99 a month. They didn't have $5.99 a month. We've had people who've given a dollar, $5, $10, $20, $25, $30. We've had people who, you know, we asked for an average of 50 bucks each, but we had people who've actually given us, um, you know, more than that, $100, $200, $300, $500, a $1,000. One guy was tired of us buffering on YouTube and said, look, here's $5,000 for your OTT channel because he knew we, I was spending the $153,000 I hadn't built. And so I chose not to go the subscription route because we wanted to be able for people to access our show and the great content. But we do hope that you give on average 50 bucks each. That's $4.19 a month, 13 cents a day. Uh, and you can do so by via cash app, dollar sign RM Unfiltered, paypal.me forward slash rmartinunfiltered, venmo.com forward slash rmunfiltered. Zell is rolling at rollinsmartin.com, rolling at rollinmartinunfiltered.com. Uh, as you know, we are we're making tremendous progress. We got some great things planned for y'all. Uh, we're moving into new office space. Uh, I, I picked the keys up. Uh, actually, picked the keys up tomorrow. Uh, so all these things are happening, uh, and I just can't wait uh, to unveil for you the announcement that we have next month. It is going to be fantastic. Uh, but again. We certainly appreciate all of you who give. If you give on YouTube, remember, we only get 55 cents of every dollar. They keep 45. So if you want to support us 100%, give to us via Cash App, Venmo, PayPal, uh, Zelle. If you want to use a credit card, just go to RolandMartinUnfiltered.com, and you can use the Square app to do that as well. When we come back, Fit Live Win. Also, Simone Biles is killing it as the GOAT in gymnastics. And also, we remember Clarence Williams III who passed away this week in the age of 81. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, I'm Nina Turner. My grandmother used to say, all you need in life are three bones. The wishbone to keep you dreaming, the jawbone to help you speak truth to power, and the backbone to keep you standing through it all. I'm running for Congress because you deserve a leader who will stand up fearlessly on your behalf. Together, we will deliver Medicare for all. Good jobs that pay a living wage and bold justice reform. I'm Nina Turner, and I approve this message. 
I'm proud of the officers I worked with on January 6th. They fought extremely hard. Our worst nightmare really come true, uh, an attack on American democracy uh, right here in the nation's capital. I experienced the most brutal, uh, savage, hand-to-hand -hand combat of my entire life. I received chemical burns to my face that still have not healed to this day. I just remember people still swinging metal poles at us and they were pushing and shoving. They were spraying us with, uh, you know, bear mace and pepper spray. They were all shouting at us, calling us traitors. It's been very difficult seeing elected officials and other individuals whitewash the events of that day or, or downplay what happened. As an American and as an Army veteran, it's sad to see us attacked by our fellow citizens. Midas Touch is responsible for the content of this advertising. I believe that people our age have lost the ability to focus the, the discipline on the art of organizing. The challenges, there's so many of them and they're complex and we need to be moving to address them. But I'm able to say, Watch out, Tiffany. I know this road. That is so freaking dope. <laughs> hey, everybody, it's your man, Fred Hammond. Hi, my name is Brisha Webb, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Ow. Well, I like a nice filter usually, but we can be unfiltered. While going through a weight loss journey, many find it challenging to maintain their energy levels. Shahada Kareem, founder of Habibi Sport, provides nutrition plans and fitness classes that focus on energizing and elevating yourself during the weight loss process. She joins us right now. How you doing? How are you? Uh, doing great. All right, so uh, th this is one of the things we we've heard from people like, okay, you know what, I I'm losing weight, I'm lethargic, I'm lethargic, but I can't get myself going. And then the others who talk about that th there can be energy drinks that you can take, uh, other ways to actually get, to boost your energy, to do it naturally. What do you suggest? I suggest real food. I don't suggest energy drinks or any synthetic or processed foods. Okay, so, um, and so, um, when you say real food, what? Everything that comes from the earth. If it comes from the earth, it's great. If it was made by man, probably not so much. One of the things that we get confused about when it comes to energy and supplementing our food is that we think that supplements are nutrition. When supplements are literally meant to supplement holes in your nutrition. So if you don't have any holes in your nutrition, you don't need a supplement. Ah, great point there. What is a... What are two or three great energy-boosting uh, items? I played golf this weekend, and um, I'm on a meal plan, and I did not want... And look, it's real easy to grab a hot dog and some other stuff when you're playing. And so I brought my protein... I brought a protein shake, and then mm -hmm. I had a banana. After, I ate that after nine holes. And then when my round was over, then I had another one. And so... Uh, and that, and that, 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 that helped me. I wasn't, I wasn't about a... 13th, 14th hole, because I walked all 18 as well. So okay. I ended up doing like 20, 21,000 steps. I think I walked probably about nine or 10 miles walking the 18 holes. Uh, and so so what are what are good energy-boosting foods 
that, that we can sort of just th toss into our bag and have with us? Greens, 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 and more greens. You can juice them. You can put them in a smoothie. I know people who munch the leaves literally out of a bag. They will wash bags of kale or a romaine lettuce. Um, arugula is great. Any kind of green, especially a dark leafy green, is going to go right into your bloodstream. Plant blood is human blood. So the chlorophyll, the thing that makes the leaf dark green, gives you an immediate energy boost. So a green smoothie. Yes. More plants than fruit. A lot of times I say green smoothie and everybody's got 15 pieces of fruit and two leaves of spinach. That's not a green smoothie. Ah, all right. More greens than anything else. The questions from our from our panel. Uh, let's see here. Uh, I'll start with the skin, the skinniest panelist, Omakongo. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I, I want to congratulate you uh, for the work that you're doing. You're really just crushing it and helping people just have better lives and more fulfilled lives. So, just congratulations on everything that you're doing. Thank One you. question I would ask is. What are your thoughts as it relates to intermittent fasting and keeping your energy when you're not really eating? Intermittent fasting is something that you do naturally anyway. When you're sleeping, you're fasting. Intermittent fasting became a fad recently, and the, the like anything else, when it becomes a fad, it can sometimes be unbalanced. Intermittent fasting is fine as long as it's balanced. The best balance, the most positive balance, is 12 on, 12 off. And that does not mean during the 12 hours that you're eating that you're stuffing your face and eating all manner of everything. It also doesn't mean on the 12 hours that you're off that you're not hydrating and drinking teas or waters. One of the issues with intermittent fasting is that you have a lot of people do four on, 24 off, 20 off, which is very imbalanced and very unhealthy. And the only reason you should be doing eight on, 16 off is if you are competing for some kind of fitness competition. So like anything, intermittent fasting is only as balanced or imbalanced as its practitioner. Thank you. Julian. Uh, we Whenever we talk to folks about fitness, uh, they have a tendency to talk more about diet than exercise. So I'll ask you the same thing I ask everyone. What do you think? I mean, is diet so much more important that exercise is unimportant? Or how, how much exercise should people be getting? As much exercise as they need. Everybody is different. And nutrition supports fitness, not the other way around. That's why you hear so much emphasis on nutrition. I don't like to use the word diet because the root word is die. And diet also, um, it assumes that a thing is temporary. Nutrition is not temporary. It is every day for the rest of your life. And it supports your movement. The more nourished you are, the better your body feels about moving, the more likely it will move in a safe and efficient way. You have to fuel your body to move it. All right, Mike Brown, your wife controls your eating. Your question. <laughs> Ms. Kareem, how are you? Um, I'm good, uh, actually, and don't this... worry, I control my husband's eating, too. Okay, well, this, actually, yeah, this All you female control uh, freaks, we got you. All right, go ahead, <laughs> whatever. This, this question is uh, in reference, actually, to my wife. She is a, a workout uh, beast. I mean, I have to pretty much make her not work seven days, work out seven days a week. But she seems to use these bangs and these energy drinks before she works out. I know you and Rowan started with the conversation about these energy drinks, and you seem to poo-poo them, and I'm glad to hear that. So what should, 
what should she start just eating greens before um, she works out, and should she completely stop drinking these bangs? I bang personally, if if she were having a conversation with me and she asked me, I would tell her yes, she should stop. And the easiest way to get anything green into your body is with a little spirulina, which is algae. It usually comes in a pill form or powder. Powder is easier on the body. Um, you mix it in a little water. I tend to mix it with a dropper full, full of chlorophyll that has peppermint in it. It tastes like minty water. It's dark green. You get an immediate energy boost. And what, she can what do that, that in place of any energy drink. What she's getting with the energy drink is a caffeine burst. And what it does is raises her adrenaline. So she's telling her body that she's being chased by a bear. So now she has all of this energy. So she's running, 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 running. So she can really go fast and far in a workout. But afterwards, she's going to crash. And what was that Greens little... will not allow potion. you to crash. What was that little potion you mentioned called or ingredient? Spirulina. It's very cheap. It's easy. It's, okay. it's just algae. Um, it typically comes in a powder or a pill form. I prefer the powder because you can mix it with water and it goes right into your bloodstream. Liquids will go into your bloodstream faster than the solid ever will. And then your body doesn't have to work, work to break down a pressed pill form. Both of the forms are just dehydrated algae. It's just ground into a powder. Sometimes they press it into a pill. Sometimes you just get it in a little jar. I would mix that with 16 ounces of water, half teaspoon to 16 ounces of water, a dropper full of chlorophyll, dark green. It's so dark green, it's almost black. There, there's her energy. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. What You're is, welcome. What does flaxseed oil actually do? Flaxseed oil does different things depending on how you use it. You can use it topically. It is amazing for skin and scalp health. Or you can take it. It is an immune booster. So flaxseed does a lot of no, things. No, no, I know uh, people uh, who uh, cook flax, with it. Flaxseed. Flax. Blacks. I thought you said black no, seed. I was like, I oh, we're going back to the motherland. I, okay, I'm, black, I'm seed. black. I don't need no black <laughs> seed. I'm, I'm, I, I, got, I got good DNA. I'm good. So, okay. uh, flax, <laughs> flax seed. Flax seed is a protein booster. It is very, very good for you. Flaxseed can be taken, ground is the best way. You can put it in a smoothie. That's a lovely way to have it. If you roast it and mix it in a salad dressing or sprinkle it on top of a salad, it should, the seeds should be broken because they're easier to digest that way. But flaxseed is a great protein booster. It, is also, it also is good for helping fill you up. One of the things that people worry about when they go on a nutrition plan is that they're going to feel deprived. So flaxseed is one of those things that will help you not feel deprived. So when you talk about a certain amount, uh, like I, um, um, I was instructed to get some flaxseed oil and actually put that over a, a teaspoon over a couple of meals uh, a day. So the flaxseed oil serves a different purpose. Flaxseed is going to be a protein content. It's going to help you fill, help fill you up because it has fiber in it, and it's going to help you feel full longer. And oil is designed to moisturize you from the inside out. It's a hydrator. So anytime you use an oil, particularly something like a flax oil, you're going to hydrate your joints and hydrate your skin from the inside out. Well, that's why we... It's great for joints. You might have been recommended to do it, especially if you're walking 18 holes. You're going to need that for joint rehab. Oh, my joint's cool. That's, that's why, look, when you drop it like it's hot, when you dance enough, you're all right. 
Uh, Steve, when the people who don't do it on a regular basis, they're the ones who they need. Oh, I can't. My knees. Are, um, we ain't got no problem. I don't, don't, need, don't need no being gay. Don't need no other <laughs> stuff. We got this. Uh, a, a, a question from the control room. What the hell did Carol want to know? Uh, Carol want to know about CMOS. CMOS is another one of those things that are is kind of taking hold. See, people have been using CMOS forever, but now it's a fad, right? CMOS does contain 92 minerals. You can get those minerals from whole food. CMOS is a supplement. Is it great in a smoothie? Yes. You want to put it in your smoothie? Put it in your smoothie. You want to rinse your hair with it? Rinse your hair with it. All of that is fine. But remember that it is not meant to replace real whole foods. You get all of your vitamins and nutrients and minerals from whole foods. So when we start getting into supplementing, then we are not paying attention to what we're putting in our bodies on a regular basis in terms of feeding it three to six times a day, depending on how many times you eat a meal. Got it. So uh, what you're saying is, Carol, leave that damn sea moss alone and eat some regular damn food. She can have CMOS, she can put it in a smoothie, but CMOS should not replace any place else where she can get minerals. You can get some of those minerals in watermelon, which is now in season. So you don't have to always have CMOS. Eat some watermelon. See, there you go. Make it real simple. All right. Uh, where can folks uh, get more information uh, from you and uh, follow you? My website is habibibodysport.com. My name is Shahada Kareem. It's everywhere. Google it. It's my Instagram. It's on Facebook. It's on YouTube. I don't hide behind special handles or monikers. I'm very easy to find. I'm also very accessible. My DMs are always alive, and I respond to every inquiry. All right, then. Well, we certainly appreciate it. Thank you so very much. You're uh, very and, welcome. And hopefully, Thank folks, you for hopefully me. folks will uh, listen to the advice. Thank you. All right. Thanks a bunch. All right, folks, that is it for us. Uh, again, if y'all want to support what we do here at Roland Martin Unfiltered, look at that. We got, we got Fit Live Win. We got the book club. We're talking about uh, politics. We talk about criminal justice, all these issues. That's what makes uh, this show unlike any other out there. It's always some great stuff. And then, of course, we have those great conversations we've been showing you the previews of, of Tiffy Lawfin, Janetta B. Cole, and Alexis Herman, and Brittany Packnett Cunningham, and Chuck D., and Chris Payne. Then, of course, uh, Philip Agnew and Charles Cobb and also Bree Newsom and Reverend Dr. William J. Barber. That's a part of our uh, Facebook and Instagram uh, project. So you can actually go to my Facebook and Instagram pages and see those interviews. And so we certainly uh, appreciate uh, y'all checking us out. So great stuff we have planned. I I'm telling you, y'all have no idea. Man, I wish. I, I can't wait to tell y'all. It's going to blow y'all away. I'm telling y'all, all these people out here uh, who keep playing. And I'm going to tell y'all something. You know, you always got haters. And I like haters. Because I love for the haters to have to stay on the sidelines and see you just zoom right past them and you just keep building. I love, see, I love haters. I just love haters. See, every time my name is in their mouth, that's just advertising. That's all it is. Because you notice, I don't never mention them. Ever. See, I don't need them for clickbait. See, we put in the work here. That's why we do what we do. 
And so uh, that's why we went to Tulsa. That's why we did what we did for the six days in Tulsa. That's why we've got uh, some great things coming up uh, for Juneteenth. Looking forward to that as well. And so uh, that's going to be next week. And so, y'all, we're just doing what we do. Please support us. Uh, support what we do. Joining our Bring the Fuck fan club. Cash out. Dollar sign. RM Unfiltered. Uh, PayPal.me forward slash Unfiltered. Venmo.com forward slash RM Unfiltered. Zell is rolling at uh, Roland S. Martin.com. Uh, uh, and don't, uh, did one thing. I did have actually a couple of things. Uh, and it's not it for us, y'all. I totally forgot. Simone Biles uh, put on another historical performance uh, this weekend, winning her seventh all around championship. Took place in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, folks, uh, she is just, uh, I mean, she's the GOAT, period. She's the GOAT. Uh, period. And so uh, she was just amazing. Uh, you should have seen, uh, of course, uh, uh, some of the video. Uh, we were we are restri we restricted from showing some of that stuff. Uh, but uh, again, uh, uh, certainly congratulations to Simone Biles from Houston. And just a few weeks to go, but to the Olympic Games in Tokyo. Uh, she's going to be doing it there as well. Uh, also, folks, uh, over the weekend, Lost a great one, Clarence Williams III, the renowned black actor best known for his role as the smooth undercover cop, Link Hayes on the Mod Squad. Died at the age of 81. He passed away Friday at his home in L.A. after a battle with longtime battle with colon cancer. From 1968 to 1973, the New York native portrayed the role of the cool black cop on the Mod Squad. He also got his start in theater, appearing on Broadway and nominated for a Tony Award for Slow Dance on the Killing Ground. He was in movies like The General's Daughter, Half-Baked, and of course, Purple Rain, playing the father of Prince. An amazing role in deep cover. Also, Tales from the Hood, I'm Gonna Get You Sucker, Sugar Hill. On the small screen, the talented actor starred in Everybody Hates Chris, Twin Peaks, Walker, Texas Ranger, and Hill Street Blues. Again, Clarence Williams III, 81 years old. Certainly rest in peace. Folks, we'll see you tomorrow right here on Roller Martin Unfiltered. 06. Holla! I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.